welcome back to my virtual abode. For the last few videos, I've been discussing the topic of divine absence, or the felt problem that God is not as obvious to us as it seems he might be. I intended this current video to go up last week, but in light of the recent coronavirus debacle, I thought it fitting, in fact, especially because we're in the midst of reflecting upon divine absence, to pause and consider the implications for this crisis relative to the question of God, and particularly whether or not we can trust God. That discussion, as it turns out, is, is quite relevant to this one. Taken collectively, then, in the last few videos, we have, we have named and interpreted the phenomenon of divine absence. And in concert with the previous video, the goal of this current discussion is to ask what a faithful Christian response to divine absence might look like. So let's, let's set up the response. By, by way of very brief summary, we started out observing and naming the, this modern crisis of faith over the fact that God could be more obvious than he seems to be. I then tried to offer an interpretation of what lies behind this for us. That is, I've argued that the plausibility of modern atheism has a lot to do with the manner in which late modern technoculture has messed with our reality signals, so to speak, or instincts about what it means for a thing to be real, etc. And so having identified and interpreted the problem of divine absence, we're now asking what a faithful Christian response to it might be. And that will conclude our discussion on this then first layer of the God question. It, it, it might seem that the most obvious and apparent thing we ought to do in light of the modern issue of divine absence is uh, take up a particular side in some, some culture war, you know, you know, getting things back to where our, our God signals were a bit less messed up. That is, if my interpretation of this phenomenon is correct. Uh, and that is to say, perhaps our, our best response to our difficulties is some kind of luditism and recovery of the old homestead days or some such. Uh, in a more heady vein, a lot of Christian intellectuals talk about the, the disenchantment of the cosmos and our need to re-enchant it these days. The idea is that people used to kind of viscerally and immediately experience the world as an inherent portal to transcendence and meaning. And now with the advent of secularism and its, and its aesthetic of big and impersonal technology, the consumption of the local, the, the juggernaut of globalism, you know, the world has become flat and mechanical. Framing the problem this way certainly suggests that what we need are some counter ideas and ultimately some counter habits. You know, and some proposals along these lines are, are thoughtful and maybe help orient us, but others perhaps treat their ideologies like some sort of, of fairy dust that sprinkled into our minds will aliven reality to us once more. But, but to speak more generally, I, I think a few responses are in order here, things we need to be cautious about when we think this way. First, we should be careful not to underestimate how miserable most of us would actually find an ancient world if we actually got in a time machine and went back and lived in it. Uh, many sentimental desires to recover some past arrangement are the sorts of things that can only incubate in the imagination, but not in a lived and sometimes inconvenient real world. Uh, moreover, I don't think we want to act like nothing in the past was pure superstition of the sort that we're pretty happy to be rid of. It doesn't take a great stretch of the imagination to find this claim plausible. Lots of people are still superstitious in a way that they ought to, to, to be, and, if the, and the Bible would encourage them to be rid of. Uh, for all the ways in which our ancestors might have, attuned, have been attuned to, to see things uh, that we're not attuned to see, they, were also, they also sometimes believed in things that simply were not. <laughs> 
there are some technical debates about this claim regarding, you know, maybe Owen Barfield's notion of original participation, if one wanted to be a little fussy here. But I would wager that even with all those qualifications, we can still be fairly confident that a lot of the human race has lived with some needless fear in the past and now, perhaps even ironically underwritten by demonic deception behind the curtain, so to speak, in good old Wizard of Oz fashion. Um, but, but let's say that I'm wrong about all that, even if it's the case that the older world was more attuned to God in some enviable sense, how much did, did that actually help them? Well, it was Old Testament Israel, for whom, for whom God was obvious, so much more faithful to God for all of it. Uh, was the medieval Catholic Church so pious because they, they didn't question the existence of the divine? And then to, to ask these questions is to answer them. And I think this highlights the profundity of Christ's claim that if we, if we won't heed Moses and the prophets, then a pile of miracles won't get the job done either. Uh, now I'm paraphrasing our Lord there, mind you. Uh, but whatever one thinks of what I've said so far, I don't think there's any serious case to be made that we can in any immediate way get back to pre-modernity. Uh, also, just some ways in a moment that I think we might direct modernity, but that's a, that's a different question. What I'd want to insist upon for the moment is that any parody of the past will remain irreducibly modern, precisely because it is something that will always be experienced as having been chosen. If we, if we set up a homestead and learn to garden, this will just be, be one lifestyle option among many in our, in our particular civilization. And this means that our relationship to such a lifestyle will necessarily be more conscious, discursive, overt, and intentional. That is to say, we will have an irreducibly modern relationship to that lifestyle. But, but perhaps this is a hint about what God might actually be up to in modernity. Without, without trying to peer into the tea leaves of divine providence, as it were, <laughs> it, it is worth noting that there is a, there's some overlap between our cultural and our spiritual challenges. So in the cultural sphere, for instance, it's clear that to recover a, a robust, or, I'm sorry, a, a robust local culture against abstract belonging to identity groups, groups or to, to, to choose craft over wage slavery, etc., is something that won't just happen, but must be actively chosen and cultivated. Similarly, it is also the case that our orientation to certain spiritual realities in late modernity requires the conscious effort of the will. That is, many beliefs and habits are unsustainable in the modern world, apart from some integration of the human person, an integration of, of our ideas and our delights, because it is only the latter that will push us to overcome the, the gravitational force that can argumentlessly absorb all of our resistance of mind, so long as it incubates silently in our captured habits. And so the, the modern situation, if we're to be faithful, requires not just clarified ideas, but counter habits rooted in a will that's fixed upon the love of truth. When reality is loved and sought with the will, we don't experience then the unveiling of reality in the mind through ideas as viscerally foreign to us, uh, as suggesting a whole picture that we don't find plausible. And this is reciprocal, of course. The, the truth grasped by the mind motivates the habitual attunement to the world toward reality, habitual attunement toward reality in one's life that then reinforces the truth grasped by the mind, etc. 
but where, where reality is then not loved and seen as good by the human will, the natural human motion toward an integrated soul will inevitably render the ideas severed from the, the, the desire of the will progressively less clear, persuasive, intuitive, and plausible to us. One reading of the times then is that this is part of God's pedagogy for modern persons, precisely in the demand that our relationship to the faith be so intentional, a unity of mind and will, God perhaps brings something interesting and useful out of our situation. It wouldn't be terribly unlike him after all. Having such an, an intentional and conscious relationship to the will, to the will requires for long-term faithfulness, a unique cultivation of the whole person a unique integration of mind and heart and affect, humility with strength and wisdom with boldness and caution, etc. And, and precisely in having this, this unique demand upon us, at, at its best at least, modernity might even be seen as a vantage point instead of a mere liability. Perhaps we're not simply receivers and spenders of the spiritual gifts of our ancient fathers and mothers, but also cultivators of our own gifts for our own descendants. Interestingly, uh, in fact, in a, in a recent book called Protestant Nation, one author has argued that the theme of uniting head and heart is a kind of animating story of the American appropriation of Protestant political theology, a fragile unity, the author argues, which is still being negotiated in our, in our present moment. Seeing modernity as a vantage point is controversial, of course, though, as, as Corey Brock's forthcoming book, Orthodox Yet Modern, will argue, I am joined in such thoughts by no less a sage than Herman Bovink, the Bovs himself. <laughs> uh, I'll perhaps have occasion to reflect more on this in future videos. What I, what I want to assist on now, as much as, I, as much as I can appreciate some of those who emphasize re-enchantment themes, is that we need to be careful to recall that wisdom is ever a fresh and creative and contemporary act. And that ultimately what we're trying to discover is faithfulness in, in precisely this set of forces and circumstances, which have, which have unique challenges, but which, which, but which provoke as well unique gifts and joys and opportunities for us. In short, let's be cautious about having a nostalgic historical amnesia mixed with not a, a little ingratitude for what is in front of one's face. There are plenty of problems with the modern church, yes. There have always been plenty of problems with the church, but there are also extraordinarily wonderful opportunities and gifts in the modern church. Even the most diehard wannabe fundy, for instance, is very unlikely not to have drunk a good bit of such Kool-Aid, a, a certain set of minimally received emphases and habits that are the invisible foundation of even the way they frame their counter-moral reaction. Now, Tom Holland's recent Dominion, in fact, gets at precisely these things in a, a compelling way. I highly recommend that. Interestingly, it's possible that one vantage point we get out of the intersection of modernity and our experience of divine absence is some uh, better understanding of divine absence itself. That is how God's clarity is precisely ordered to the whole person. If I'm right to suggest that God is interested in the unity of mind and will in the human being, perhaps we can suggest alongside someone such as Paul Moser, that, that God's clarity is precisely proportioned and always has been to God's actual purposes in revealing himself. 
And, and as it turns out, God has never been simply interested in being as clear as possible, precisely because human beings do not, in any, in any unqualified sense at least, need perfect knowledge and clarity about God all the time. Remember, it is the, the glory of God, the proverb says, to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to discover a matter. And God would have us be kings, those who, who seek him in faith, who believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those that seek him. God has precisely adequated himself to those who call out and seek him in mind and will, not according to their, their faithless demand that he fit into a late modern empirical and scientific, a scientific microscope, but to the mind ready to receive reality as it is, that is, as it is given to be found, and as God manifests himself in that reality, both in general and special revelation, and ultimately, of course, in, in, in climactically and primarily in the person of Christ. We glint something of this dialectic in redemptive history, actually. Even, even in the garden, for instance, God's presence with Adam is, is not permanent, the, the heavens and earth are separated, and God is portrayed as, as, as one sort of coming in and going out of the garden as the cloud of Yahweh later goes in and comes out of the temple. Divine absence is, of course, intensified after the fall, mediated then by things like theophany, such as the burning bush or the glorious uh, angelic figure or, or the aforementioned tabernacle. But seen on the timeline of all of Israel's history, actually, these are pretty infrequent occurrences. And these moments of divine obviousness are often punctuated by centuries of crying out, hey, where are you, God? <laughs> in the climactic coming of God in Christ, who is, in, in one sense, the presence of God to end all divine absence, it is worthy of note that Christ himself does not always want to be as obvious as possible. He asks people not to reveal who he is. He conceals himself. And even after the resurrection, he, he leaves again, mediating then his absence by the presence of the spirit who now makes a, a temple in us, says Paul. We're still in that story, of course. We, like, like the Israelites of old, long for the coming of God in Christ in our own wilderness experience and look for that city where God will be fully unambiguous, fed along the way by the manna of word and sacrament and the love, and, uh, and, and the love of the hands and feet of Christ, which is the, the love of his, him through his church. We ache for him even as, as we rest in him. What's going on here? It's certainly not that we don't have good reasons to believe in God, just as the Israelites of old, we do. We'll go over some of the more philosophical ways of thinking through that soon. It's rather that God is not and has never been interested in people's relationship to him being simply mediated by his sort of obvious level givenness. Uh, God is interested in being sought by human beings. He is clearest to those whose lives are the most full of meaningful action and love. He is clearer to those who see the gift that all of reality just is and then receive it as from the hand of another, rooted in a, in a sense of creatureliness and of deep dependence upon God. These things attune our souls to reality in such a way that the arguments about reality, that is those arguments for God, from reality, from philosophy, if you will, don't strike us as peculiar snapshots of a ghost that we can never quite otherwise capture, but as simply stating clearly what is always and ever right in front of, our, right in front of us in order that we might love it more consciously and fully. 
This is all consonant, of course, with what I said in my previous video about God cultivating our trust in him, uh, his reversal of our, our, our Edenic distrust of God, such that we now have to learn to trust him in the wilderness, which is good for us and healing for us, and which is the foundation of everything I'm saying here. Okay, so maybe modernity isn't entirely bad. <laughs> maybe God is up to something. Maybe it's not terribly unlike what he's always been up to. Fine, good. <laughs> it's still the case, though, that our situation has unique challenges, that modern secularism, for instance, is ultimately not quite ideal, uh, that there are certain lost goods that are worth lamenting the loss of. And what's to be done about those things? And of course, the answer to, to, this is, uh, to this, especially that latter part, you know, what do we do about the loss of the local and et cetera, that's very complicated. Uh, you can read Jake Meter's new book, For the Common Good, if you want to think more about those things. But I think it's worth making a few gestures here. At a, at a certain uh, visceral level, it's likely to remain the case for a while that modern people will be uniquely able to interpret the world through two sets of lenses, as one of my, my friends recently and helpfully put it to me. Even if we're uncomfortable saying so out loud, and even if we find one interpretation deeply incoherent on a mental level, we're still caught up in a set of cultural, mental, and practical motions that make the world, if, if my argument in the previous video is correct, kind of appear a certain way to us. We can, of course, be disciplined to see that this is what's going on and note when our judgments are good and wise versus just a bit childlike, as the judgments of the new atheists often are. <laughs> but we will still struggle with feeling that what is incoherent to our minds might nevertheless have a sort of lived coherence for modern persons, a world of materialism and nihilism on some register. And we can even sometimes feel the attraction of being scripted into being one of those, you know, brave souls who can take it, you know, nature red in tooth and claw or whatever. And that's probably a bit overly compensatory and insecure, uh, but, but I digress there. The point is at a, at a visceral, not an intellectual level, two vastly different pictures of reality sometimes feel alternatively plausible to us. We can go back and forth between them. So what can be done about that? First, it's, it's worth saying that we shouldn't be ashamed of being interested in modern apologetics. Its existence does say something about our situation, but it's also part of the solution to our situation. We live in a context where we feel a peculiar need to see things a bit more clearly and explicitly on some registers, and that's okay. There's, there's a lot of good material out there that really does have pastoral value for modern persons. It's not the only thing we need, but Thomas's five arguments and maybe Ed Feaser's recent little book on Thomas's five arguments, for instance, are probably far more important for modern Christians than such things were for medieval Christians, for whom the, those arguments would have been maybe curious and charming, but not so urgently necessary that they felt as though anything ultimately hinged on whether they worked or not. God was obvious to them, even if those arguments weren't, but they're helpful for us, and that's worth saying. But as, it, as I've said throughout, arguments aren't enough. How do habits then come into play here? There, there is, of course, a, a good bit written on this in recent evangelicalism. Jamie Smith's cultural liturgies project that he summarized in a You Are What You Love comes to mind here. Um, I, I mentioned the role of the church in my first video in this series, and it would be quite relevant to mention you know, prayer, Christian disciplines, the practice of Christian virtues, getting counseling for one's problems and griefs, having an imagination and mind shaped by scripture, etc. 
all of these things help shape our interpretation of reality, especially, I might point out, going through the process of dealing with one's griefs. But I'm going to uh, focus on something that kind of overlaps a lot of these things. Here's, here's how I'd want to frame it. The world has never been disenchanted. It's rather we who have been disenchanted. And this is, of course, just what disen disenchantment really means if it's meaningful. But, but putting it that way, saying it's we're that, disen we're that are disenchanted rather than the world that's disenchanted, uh, making that rhetorical shift, if you will, does help us think a bit more clearly. On the one hand, we've, we've lost a good bit of superstition. That's nice. But we've also been habituated to relate to the world in a way that evaporates certain needs we tend to have, and which has disintegrated many of the ways in which human beings have classically engaged the world in such a way that they feel themselves to have a meaningful relationship to it, where its inherent meaning kind of arises in their organic relation to the world and to others. But what I'd like to suggest is that we can still find orientation in our current situation if we think about what it means to do meaningful labor. So this is one thing to say. Here's what I'd want to say about that. When we take up meaningful labor, we relate to the world and to others in a way that treats them as intrinsically agentic and person-like, and therefore as sort of mirrors of God in his personhood. What I want to insist upon is that meaningful labor, nevertheless, can be inflected in two ways. First, to whatever extent modernity is lamentable in some ways, it is fitting and loving for Christians to think about the manner in which they might resist its consumption of certain goods, that is to resist the modern world's consumption of certain goods. And it is fitting and loving to be proactive about this. Human beings are, are most healthy and flourish, for instance, when, when households are treated with dignity, uh, when the home bears an enormous amount of real and symbolic weight, when one is able to cultivate a relationship to their neighbors through labor that is self-possessed rather than owned, and where the meaning of, of manhood and womanhood matters not just at an ideological, but at a lived and visceral level which is an enormous problem with a lot of so-called complementarianism, which tends to be superficially performative and ideological. When a, when a person relates to the world in free possession of their own vocation and serves their neighbor out of the gifts which they have been, which they have to, to contribute to the common good, one, one implicitly, intrinsically feels themselves to be a part of a kind of organic unity that transcends and situates them, a process that is prior to them and will continue after them. Uh, I'll, I'll likely mention this several times in future videos because I don't think we are often shocked enough by the manner in which certain features of the ordinary modern experience at a communal and a vocational level are deeply problematic and bad and abnormal historically for human beings. This kind of thing, theme amounts in no small part for the recent influence of someone such as Jordan Peterson on young men who are, who are hungry for a more meaningful kind of responsibility in a world that demands sort of mindless absorption into an administrative and professional borg and discourages classical virtues of free rather than socially conditioned self-possession. In any case, I would suspect that the person who uses the gifts that God has given them to give and takes up meaningful labor in order to give those gifts to their neighbor, in other words, someone who just loves well, uh, is likely to be 
relating to the world in such a way uh, that God is more viscerally obvious rather than obscured in the mirror of their labor. And what I mean by that is, is that when we act in a certain way in the world, we're implicitly imagining the world to be a certain way. And this kind of labor, uh, the, the, the kind of thing I'm describing implicitly imagines the world to be one of intrinsic meaning that summons me and which I then actively go into and contribute to and participate in and cultivate. And, the, and then the arguments seem to, the arguments for God then seem to actually describe one's lived world rather than some other world uh, that, it, it, you know, when I relate to the world in a way that's more impersonal and less manifesting in personhood. But second, meaningful work, as I've described it above, is not always possible for persons in the modern world, at least, again, in that sense that I just mentioned. Um, lots of people will remain, for instance, wage slaves. Uh, moreover, accounting for all the details that make up a life, <laughs> there are millions of concrete lives that aren't going to be able to give much to stopping the forces of modernity's consumption of the local, etc. And yet these persons do have meaningful lives. They can take up meaningful labor. Um, and here's where there's a deeply pastoral benefit, I think, actually to be found in really thinking about the essence of the Great Commission and of the Creation Commission, which are prior to our job, even though ideally they're some way linked to our job. <laughs> Meaningful work in this world has never only been, though, about one's immediate circumstances. Sometimes we receive a, a complex hand at life. Indeed, maybe that's more often, uh, maybe that's more ordinary than not. But we can always find a way to use our gifts to bless others, no matter the circumstances. And even if it's not, uh, you know, a part of our, our, you know, sort of how we make money. In other words, we can always find a way to love. And, it, and in so doing, we're actually finding a place in the grand narrative of God's work in the world. The Creation Commission is in part God's cultivating and developing the world by means of his vice regents, humans. And similarly, in the Great Commission, he employs the church for the sake of his kingdom. And so when we love our, when we love our neighbor, we belong to history. We receive the gifts of others before us and with us, and the gifts that God has given us directly are our, 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 our talents, if you will. And then we give out of that to others for God's glory, for the benefit of our neighbor, and our own satisfaction in participating in this grand movement. As, as, as Andy Crouch has reflected on so well in his work, all Christians have a little bit of power and all can use it after the character and pattern of Christ to love their neighbor well. In the Cultural Commission, we participate in the cultivation of this world and of our civilization. And in the Great Commission, we participate in the expansion of God's kingdom through mankind. In uh, each, we are part of a project from which no circumstance can ultimately alienate us, even if it can alienate us in certain respects. Uh, but nevertheless, we're, we're never ultimately alienated, and we can always rule through love. Even a slave, love is the greatest of the commandments, even a slave who has no external control over their circumstances in a lot of cases is still a king. And as a king, living before God rather than men, a king whose dignity is scandalously unrecognized by neighbors. Such a slave can still leave behind a legacy of love over hate. 
and can speak the truth of God where lies reign supreme. Think of Paul uh, in prison in Acts 16 when he finds an opportunity to, to love a jailer in a transformative way. Slaves belong to and make history, not the, the now evaporated myths of their master's civilizations, but the history of the kingdom of God to which they can bear witness with their love and instantiate with their love <laughs> and faithfulness even in the face of injustice. Indeed, the early spread of Christianity has not a little to do with the kingly dignity of slaves. It's rumored that uh, Onesimus, in fact, there's some debate over whether Onesimus himself, a former slave, actually became a bishop. Uh, but had not a little to do then with the kingly dignity of slaves who knew themselves to be free in Christ. Uh, moreover, had not the, the chief purveyors of the Great Commission been faithful women and nursemaids that are forgotten to our history? Silenced in, in our chronicles, they remain in the protagonists of heaven's history, the faithful foot soldiers in a grand tale. One of the, the central insights of the Reformation, in fact, is that Satan is afraid of nothing more than a housewife brewing beer, changing a nappy, and teaching her kids about Jesus. It should be clear then that when I say we will be more attuned to the spiritual realities that our, that our minds otherwise know intellectually, to the extent that we orient our whole selves toward God in our labor, I don't mean to suggest that if we can't open up an artisanal wood shop or that if we live in a trailer park and eat at McDonald's, that we might as well give up on the whole thing. <laughs> Ultimately, I do think the long-term effect of many people loving their neighbors well is that civilization will move in the direction of developing wholesome labor systems and robust households and certain civilizational values. And it is wonderful to whatever extent one has the opportunity and will to pursue those efforts or things in the, in the face and forces that, that shove most people in otherwise directions. But the most immediate calling, the ineradicable and inalienable one, is simply to love well wherever we actually are and however we actually can. And we can never really know what this looks like for others in the abstract, but only in, in a whole world of concerns and decisions. That is to say, in the concrete, in a real set of demands upon a particular person in a particular situation that they can then respond to faithfully, and over which God not you, not me, is the ultimate judge of their faithfulness. To work well, then, to, to, to do meaningful work is simply to learn what it means to know oneself, know one's gifts, and know how to give them in one's concrete circumstances. This is, this is ultimately what it must mean to become re-enchanted, and it is entirely possible in the trailer park with a box of fries. <laughs> I mean, of course, eat your organic broccoli, it's better for you, and raise chickens if you want to, but it's not the most important thing or the priority for everyone. The chief priority is to, to, to resting in God's promises, receive all of your life as a gift, all of your circumstances as not something of which you're the victim, but as that in which you can be more than conquerors, and to exercise the opportunity to gratefully participate in his world while and where you can. Such a life will intuitively grasp the deficiencies of any system that seeks to dissolve such attachments and will be viscerally and constitutionally resistant to the whispers of materialisms of, of any sort. So let's sum up the, the last video in this one. I want to emphasize how the the, the, I, I'd want to emphasize how the dialectic between God's presence and absence has always been a part of God's training us to trust him. 
which is precisely for our good and our enjoyment and out of his love because it's a reversal of our fall. It's part of our healing. Um, and I'd want to emphasize how our current historical moment involves both unique possibilities and unique challenges. Those challenges especially require, in my judgment, the, the active taking up of meaningful labor in order to reattune ourselves to a world that is objectively meaningful, to connect to that meaning, a world that is fundamentally personal and of a person. One part of this task is to take, uh, take part in whatever cultivates human civilization in the direction of what is good for human nature in accordance with natural law. Uh, but in my judgment, this includes recognizing some of the goods of modernity as well as uh, some of the goods that modernity, excuse me, modernity tends to obscure, such as the, the loss of identities that are firmly rooted in, in home and place. But it is also true that our particular job in this grand project is not determined in the abstract, but again, in the concrete. And in the concrete, we can never fully be alienated from the project of ruling this world and spreading God's kingdom. All persons, even prisoners, can love their neighbor, and they have the opportunity to give gifts of life out of the life that God has given them. And no matter what moment one belongs to, that moment belongs to God's story and to his work. Conscious participation in God's kingdom then attunes the whole person to reality in a way that materialism is rendered finally implausible, a kind of shallow reading of the world read out of a shallow way of life that our world attempts to script us into, reflected in both shallow ideas and shallow habits. All right, so we've talked about the, you know, the as it were, phenomenological layer of the God question, and we're next going to move on to the more moral and aesthetic layers, I've called it, and finally on to that layer wherein we talk about positive arguments for God. I think this is a, a natural way of proceeding precisely because of what I've argued is correct. The, the clarity of our thoughts about God will tend to be only as useful as the fixedness of our hearts upon God. That is to say, if we feel that God, relative to the will, is undesirable or ugly in some way, we're unliable to feel as though the God described in our thoughts can possibly be real. We will begin to doubt whether or not we're out of tune with things, and so as I'll, as I'll discuss later, uh, uh, this might be mere willfulness, you know, the old, I don't believe in God because I want to sleep with my girlfriend, you know, phenomenon. But uh, as I'll try to show next time, I think matters are often a bit more complicated than this. That doesn't account for all scenarios on any honest reading. And so the next few videos, what I'll do is I'll talk about how issues related to, to justice and sexual ethics and even human freedom, for instance, tend to get in the way for modern persons of a clear vision of God. Or rather, we, we by means of those things, tend to be in our own way. <laughs> uh, and I hope that by encouraging a more proper orientation of heart, thinking through those things afresh, perhaps, we might be then in a better position when we get to that third layer to consider the arguments themselves as part of a world we've already then otherwise have begun to find plausible relative to our reoriented wills. So you start with the will and then we'll move on to the mind. Thomists actually, you know, followers of Thomas Aquinas, like to talk about the ascent to God through the will and through the mind. Uh, and we can talk about these things in either order, and classically people have tended to start with the mind and work through the will. Uh, but because of our unique historical situa situation, I think it might be useful to start with the will and then go to the mind. 
it is, it's very likely the case after all that it is ordinarily with the will, with our loves, rather than with our mind, that our, problem, our problems most primally and originally arise. In any case, after that, I'll, I'll go through the arguments that have most helped me, that third layer then, that have most helped me in my own attempt to think through the question of God. I can't promise that these will appeal to everyone in the same way, but I find them persuasive, and I'll tell you why as we go along and give you my reading of how things work, as it were. Um, but that's all for now in this time. And so uh, until, until the next video, from one human face to another, farewell.